0: I'm never the owner of the, of the property, I just build the dwellings, owner keeps one, we sell one and we take our profit.
1: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we talk to self-made millionaire, Tail Lambus. He unveils the unique secret behind his success, discusses how he transitioned from electrician to investor and details the story behind a $115,000 loss on an unfulfilled subdivision. All that and more on this episode of Property Investory. Chara Lambis made millions through property. But he started out as an electrician proving that property is a goldmine for anyone who is willing to do the hard work and dig.
0: I am one of the directors of Planis' property team um, and we currently run our business which is geared for helping property investors to uh, purchase properties as well as develop those with a real focus on manufacturing equity in your investments.
1: While Sydney markets are booming right now it's still a good idea to manufacturing your own equity as it's a great way to minimise your risk of low growth.
0: I think um, particularly for uh, your Sydney listeners, they've had a pretty good run over the last few years uh, and obviously the different parts of uh, Australia have have done reasonably well, uh, all at different stages in the property cycle. However, what we do find is that by manufacturing some equity, it just takes you away from the reliance on growth and we use growth as a bonus. Um, and we certainly want to be buying in areas and buying at the right time uh, in the property cycle. However, if we can use that and couple it with um, some manufactured equity strategies um, can really spur on the, the portfolio and spur on the investment to you know, much greater, greater heights and much faster.
1: Charles Amber spends his time split between his clients and his team. This ensures everyone gets the help and guidance they need.
0: Because I'm a director of, of the company, as I mentioned, I suppose I've, my, my day is split between looking at, um, so we certainly have clients that we're searching for properties for, so I will oversee that. So I'll check in with our team here that is looking for uh, properties for our clients and ourselves. And, and just to take a step back on that, we certainly um, started initially because of doing our own investing and developing and then it just grew into clients wanting us to assist them with theirs and so my day as you asked is split up between looking for properties for our clients and checking in with our team on that as well as uh, our property managers so to check on our approvals that we have running uh, and we will be getting approvals for anything from extensions, renovations, granny flats, townhouses uh, and up to uh, blocks of home units. Uh, for our clients and and then also checking in with the finance team on any um, finance for purchases as well as uh, construction loans. We have a real focus because of what we're doing. We have a a real focus and a real expertise in the construction loan area.
1: With such busy days being poured between managing people and property simultaneously, it's important for Chair Lambus to find a balance so things don't get messy.
0: Certainly try and get a balance um, and we've got to have a, a situation where I certainly have quiet time and locked out time where I'm you know, not answering any, any messages or taking any calls and that sort of thing because you need time to focus and focus on the next transaction that we want to do as well. Um, so you, you certainly have to have that space uh, otherwise I find you get too caught up in the doing and not enough in the uh, creating and the planning, which is equally as important as the doing of the current transactions you have going.
1: He describes himself as a passive-aggressive investor that uses unique thinking for a win-win situation.
0: I believe I'm, I have some aggressive strategies that we implement conservatively. So, if that makes sense. So, we're um, our strategies are quite. Uh, a little bit creative, a little bit outside the box, um, however at the same time we need to look at those quite conservatively to make sure that we've, you know, we've dotted the I's and crossed the T's uh, before going into the transactions.
1: Charles Lambis grew up in the hustle and bustle of inner western Sydney where his parents started a family business.
0: The early years were in the inner west of Sydney. Uh, so, sort of anywhere between the we had a couple of different places that we were living in, and schooling. Uh, so, started off in the Ashfield and Concord area. Um, so, at the time, so we're talking now in the sixties and seventies, um, and probably into the eighties for that matter. Uh, they were. Probably 60s and 70s living in those areas, um, they're fairly, fairly, you know, middle class. I suppose you'd want to call them. Uh, but we were, you know, a typical uh, migrant background. Um, with uh, my parents having, at that point in time, uh, fish shops that they were running. So the fish and chip shops that are probably typical for the migrants of that era. Um, and you know, I was growing up, and that's what I knew and. Watching what they were doing um, is, is where we grew up and we moved in, it was in the late 70s, we moved to Taramura also in Sydney uh, but a very different feel, um, you know, much bigger blocks of land, much leafier uh, aspect and outlook uh, and, and a different, different feel, different demographic totally.
1: Over the decades, the areas he grew up in have changed drastically. Charles Lambus explains the most notable changes he's noticed.
0: The Ashfield Concord area has probably gone from being in those years more of, more of a, a lower to middle class um, to it is so gentrified now and it is the, the land values and the property values now have immensely changed and they're in, in much greater demand um, and probably a lot more favourable than they were in those years. Uh, so it's it's changed immensely and certainly um, the style of housing in those areas have changed again typically in those years. We had some, you know, lots of your bungalows and your, your post-war bungalows um, that were probably typical again for that area, but a lot of those now it's much higher density. Um, we've had with zoning changes and you know, government's wanting to create more housing, um, much much higher densities in, in those areas um, of, of the inner west of Sydney. As we move to Taramara, which is more on the north shore of Sydney, um, the blocks were bigger in those days and still are bigger today. Uh, the council in that area, which is Karingai Council, is probably more stringent on maintaining. Um, Feel the vibe and feel of the place. There's still much bigger blocks uh, in that location. The feel is more family, probably more family to mm, oh, mid mid to late um, teens that would be in the families uh, because of the schooling in the area. Lots of very good private schools throughout the uh, North Shore of Sydney, and it tends to attract. Um, and lots of good public schools too throughout the North Shore so really good schools generally and it tends to attract families to that area um, predominantly for the schooling um, is is what's there.
1: Seeing his parents operate their own business and have their own house inspired him to follow suit.
0: I only ever knew of my parents having their own business um, so to me that was a natural progression Um, It was just what they did and what I did. Uh, When I left school and I left school at the age of 15, I went on to do an electrical apprenticeship and then by the age of 19 was running my own electrical business Um, and I had that business till I was 35 and um, that gave me a really good grounding on property and on renovating and actually how that works. And I did a lot of investing um, during those years, investing and renovating and selling. And again, typical for um, you know the, the migrants of that era, uh, my parents were buying property, running their business, saving their money, buying property throughout that time. And hence my progression into that and uh, I actually bought my first property at the age of 18 whilst I was still an apprentice electrician um, and that's very much influenced by uh, by my parents and, and watching what they did.
1: By 35, he had stopped wiring and started buying. He built his property business steadily with the help of a business partner.
0: I got out of the electrical business in 2003. Um, uh, yeah, after having it, as I said, 16 or 17 years and then actually had a year off um, and was doing a little bit of property investing uh, on my own at the time. And actually got involved in a program that was geared towards investors and showing people how to invest and then by 2004, 2005, I was actually helping run and facilitate that program of teaching um, investors and it was just a natural progression for me. I actually met my current business partner at one of those programs, um, and he had a finance background, and we started doing some property transactions together, and then it was from there we actually put his finance business and what I was doing together and set up Plan Assist in 2005, and it just sort of grew from there, I suppose. We, We kept getting more and more call for what we were doing, And we started by purely doing finance and a little bit of project management and that led into then people asking us to acquire the properties for them. Um, So we started doing the acquisition and then about five years ago, um, we found that we were struggling with trying to keep the building side of things flowing consistently. So we actually added a building company um, to ours as well about five years ago. So it's all sort of grown uh, naturally, uh, and and sort of as the demand has has required it as well.
1: Fantastic. So it sounds like the company grew quite organically over the years with due to the demand, and uh, you, you're able to meet the supply over a period of time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, it's on that. It was the demand, and it was also probably a little bit of um, uh, I suppose meeting a frustration, and a little bit some sometimes with a client's frustration in say not being able to source. Properties and sometimes it was our own frustration in not being able to source, uh, you know, consultants or builders or, you know, things to, that we needed. Um, and then, we were, as we we're meeting our own frustration, we were solving a frustration for our clients too.
1: After saving for three years, his debut into the property game finally came at the ripe age of 18.
0: The first one, as I mentioned, I was. Uh, an apprentice that was 1984, Um, so I would have been the third year apprentice um, at the time and it just, uh, I'd literally been saving for three years um, and it just sort of felt like it was the the natural next step and certainly Dad was encouraging me. Um, Dad was a huge influence on you know, my property investing journey. Um, And he was certainly encouraging me to get out there and buy something. Um, And I think at the time I had a a grand total savings of about $20,000. So I went out to see what I could do with that money, which $20,000 was a lot of money in 1984.
1: I was going to say, even today, $20,000 is still a lot of money.
0: However, I'm not sure $20,000 would buy you a lot in the west of Sydney today Uh, but I went out and started looking and what I found was a property in Auburn, um, so pretty much the heart of Sydney or the geographical heart of Sydney um, as it is today and I I bought a, a fairly typical three-bedroom, single-fronted home in Auburn on a standard block for the area, which was quite small, probably sort of 400 or 450 square metres at the time, and purchased that for $59,000 and used my $20,000 to make up a 20% deposit plus some stamp duties plus some legal fees. Um, And then I think my $20,000 was all spent. Um, And that property I actually kept for quite some time, just had it rented out for the whole time, um, and really did some renovations. Initially, certainly was doing those um, renovations myself, uh, and myself and Helen. Uh, Helen is my wife, and I met Helen in 1987. Um, so I'd owned that property already. However, as tenants were moving out, um, we would go in there and give it a coat of paint, or you know, when it was time for a new kitchen, we'd organise a new kitchen, um, buying flat pack flat pack kitchens or buying uh, kitchens that were out of kitchen showrooms that were no longer needed, and, and doing the renovations ourselves. Um, and we kept that property until. Uh, 1995 or 96. I think we sold it in 96 um, for $142,000 um, and went on to buy other properties with those funds. Uh, but it was, I think, initially at a $59,000 purchase, had a rental of $80 a week, um, so it was quite modest uh, at the time. But it certainly certainly served us well.
1: After a few years in the game, Charles Lambus is expanding his business beyond the domestic market and is transitioning into a bigger ballpark.
0: Yeah, we've actually um, sold quite a few down just during the last few years because we felt the timing was right Um, and we've put um, currently a lot of our funds are now shifted into commercial property Um, so we're, we're probably more focused on commercial and on our Um, transactions that we're doing. We're doing some property options um, which we may talk about a bit later and we have done quite a few of those and we do continue to do those. Um, But yeah, we've probably got, I think at the moment, on the commercial side of things there would be probably 12 to 14 sort of that sort of stage. We've got a couple of offers in there on one or two at the moment um, that we're selling as well. Um, So we're at that Around that sort of level, um, we're actually just working on a couple too with some rezonings, um, working with council on some rezonings, um, and, and packaging those for uh, development and redevelopment. And I'll again happy to chat about how we do that.
1: So, are you saying that you've sold off all your residential properties and moved it into commercial? What was the reason behind on that?
0: Uh, we were finding with the residential, the returns were so much lower, um, and our opportunities. We actually had a few that we had some good opportunities for on some rezonings and getting some DAs, and we did that and sold them. Um, but we just found the opportunities were better in the commercial sphere, um, so we moved across into the commercial. We're just, again, as I mentioned, just manufacturing that equity. Uh, we were just finding some better opportunities in the commercial sphere so that's where we've shifted at, at the current time.
1: So to clarify, would you say like in terms of commercial you had better uh, capital gain or capital growth and also better rental return?
0: Absolutely. The rental return is is far greater um, and we're finding that because of the development upside of what we're doing, um, then our ongoing equity and, and manufactured equity is also a lot greater um, and because of the level of, you know, we're talking, you know, commercial properties probably to the value of 20 odd million dollars, depending on, you know, valuations and the like, we can make a difference to those quite substantially pretty easily. Uh, we can increase, increase zonings or increase floor space ratios or increase rents. Um, in our commercial leases, for instance, we've always got annual locked-in rental increases you know that that just go on every year, um, and that just is increasing our our bottom line on an ongoing basis without needing to worry about. You don't get the phone calls from your commercial tenants asking for, you know, tap washers and asking for, you know, you know, blocked toilets or asking for blown globes and that sort of stuff. You just don't get it. They just deal with it themselves.
1: The new venture is bursting with opportunity. Is an exciting step for Charles Lambis and his company.
0: So we've gone a lot into the commercial and into some uh, cash investments as well at the moment. That we're I just want to see exactly what this market is going to do with where we're sitting with interest rates and where we're sitting with the marketplace. We are seeing some opportunities coming back in the resi market, um, but I feel I'm probably still 12 months before I'll be comfortable to get back into. Some of the resi stuff, uh, I think we, we've just seen things started to um, level off a little bit at the moment. And yeah. again, I'm probably a bit more opportunistic, so I'm just looking for a couple of more opportunities that we'll um, jump into there. Um, yeah, but it's... it's and, and I suppose some of the resi that we do you know, with what they are, I, I still consider them they're commercial transactions, even though we may be holding residential property. Um so we may amalgamate two or three neighbouring properties and, you know, do DAs for townhouses or um blocks of apartments. Um and they're what I consider very much um you know commercial transactions even though they're, you know, on residential land.
1: Knowing how much you can risk in an investment is a vital step to ensuring good capital gain. Although Charles Ambus knows what he's doing, there have still been some investments where things turn sour.
0: Uh, look, I'm essentially, I'm actually very, very grateful for my time in, in the industry and that starts from, as I mentioned, when I was doing my apprenticeship because it taught me a lot about the property market um, and then my investments, again, we've been, for whatever reason, you know, I consider it very lucky to have generated what we have done um, out of out of the property sector. So, But one thing that I'm really clear on and one thing that I always share with people, particularly, you know, if I'm presenting on stage is that I'll tell people that we, um, there is always risks um, and, you know, you only need, I only ever invest what you're prepared to risk Um, it's just you do need to be very, very careful. So some of our transactions, if I were to share some of those that went uh, not necessarily the way we wanted them to, um, we actually worked on a site that was in northwest Sydney uh, in Kenthurst, um, so in the Hills area of Sydney, Hills district of Sydney, um, where we were looking to do a subdivision. And we were working with council on doing that and everything complied, the land size was right, the zoning was right when we purchased this property. And then by the time we submitted our DA with council, they had actually changed their minimum lot size. Um, and it was it was a real issue for us. So um, we were suddenly holding a block of land that we'd purchased, or it was a block of land with a house on it. That we'd purchased with the intention of subdividing and on selling, and then we were told by council that that block did no longer comply for a subdivision um, so it was it was a major issue for us.
1: just how did he overcome such a huge problem like that?
0: We ended up doing uh, some work to the existing home um, and ended up there was a There was certainly a possibility for a second dwelling on the house, um, which we did, and what that did was recoup some of the funds. However, we couldn't subdivide, so those two dwellings had to sell, had to stay on one title. Um, And yeah, it probably in the end, I think, was in the vicinity of, we still lost about $115,000 overall on that project. and it was, uh, yeah, at the time, it hurt. It was, it was a lot of money, uh, and it still is a lot of money. Uh, we're now talking that would have been early 2000s, so 2002, 2003. Um, so we probably weren't helped in the Sydney market uh, by the fact that 2003 was the top of the market. Um, so we had to get out. Because we could see the market was going the wrong way and the lesson from that for us was always about understanding that we would purchased this property to do a subdivision uh, and hence now why we're a lot more careful going into our transactions and we will just about always set up some form of a due diligence period or some form of an option to give us the time to be able to do our due diligence with council and get some answers from council and our consultants um, on what is possible. Uh, And to give you an example on that, there is one on the market today, a residential block, which uh, we believe is subdivisible. It's, we certainly haven't purchased it and haven't even put an offer in, but it's currently with our town planner Uh, to make sure that we can do what we want to do before we submit any offers. Um, So we just, yeah, you've got to be very, very careful. Uh, A lot of people just feel that, oh, it's a a big block or someone's done it next door or someone's done it around the corner or I've done it before. Doesn't mean that you can do it today. Um, So it was a real concern for us at the time.
1: So, council changes these things without notice. Is that what happened? Is that why it got caught out, unfortunately?
0: Yeah, look, they they generally will give notice, but it depends on where they're at in their planning process. So, unfortunately, with this one, their planning process was quite a way down the track and they gazetted it after we'd bought it. Um, however, we hadn't lodged our DA yet. So, had our DA have been in, our application, development application had, had it been lodged with council, it may have been a different outcome for us.
1: When Chara Lambus took the plunge into joint ventures, his opportunities really began to open up. He used that aha moment to manufacture more success.
0: What we have done and what we did do a lot of and still continue to do is joint ventures and we've done joint ventures with people, for instance, that have sites that are um, either subdivisible or you can do multi-dwelling housing on it. And we actually go in and we'll work with an owner to unlock that potential. And we've done several where, for instance, we've had a property where you can build two dwellings on and we will go in and do that. Now. aha moment there came in where we were looking for all these we were looking for a property looking to do subdivisions and we could never get the feasibility to work or rarely get the feasibility to work then all of a sudden we went in and started talking to the owners and in this particular instance what happened was i went into an open home and the agent had to leave and literally we got there and The owner had just arrived home. The agent was just leaving. However, I knew the agent and they said, is it okay? You know, we've got to go. And I said, yeah, I'll just have a look around the outside. And as I was just finishing up, the owner turned up back home and then I started talking to the owner. And so I asked her what she wanted to do, you know, when she left, when she moved out. And she said, oh, look, really, I want to stay in the area. However, I'm just looking for a smaller home. And the aha moment was, well, if she wants to stay in the area and she's looking for a smaller home and I feel I can build two on this block, why doesn't she keep one of these? And so we worked with her and actually built two. She kept one and we kept one. However, what we did there, we actually created a recipe of these and said, well, if this works and people like it, why don't we do more of them? And we've gone on to do uh, 10 or 12 of these now with owners. And one of them, we actually built four homes um, and did a profit split. And these work really well. And what I like about them is that they're repeatable. So I can have a formula that I work to. We can tick the boxes. We know what land size we need. We know what the sales are going to be. We can control our construction costs. Uh, and we minimize our risk, really important to minimize the risk and learning from that previous experience that I mentioned to you in these examples, I don't ever buy the land. In fact, I'm never the owner of the, of the property, I just build the dwellings, owner keeps one, we sell one and we take our profit.
1: Coming up after the break, we discussed the vital importance of mindset that has on one success in property. And if
0: your why is purely just because of wanting to create money, then I think you're losing something along the way.
1: The genius way Charles Ambus found his money-making pattern.
0: We paid her a fee um, to secure the property or to take that property off the market for 12 months. And she retained that fee even if we didn't proceed. Uh, with our
1: purchase. The personal habits that allowed him to work more efficiently.
0: You get that time you come back with a clear head, you come back with you know, an open mind and you're able to think a bit clearer.
1: And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey. Five months later, the development was refinanced and we received our funds back with interest. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in the property market like this one. So, do you want to get a better return with lower risk on your money? Then register your interest by visiting PropertyInvestory.com. Jerry <music> Lambis got into the property game at a young age, but he didn't let fear get in his way. However, there are always going to be external pressures that could derail a beginner's mindset.
0: Yeah, look, it's, it's interesting. At, at 18, um, it's probably all okay. Like, I actually found that quite a simple process, uh, other than uh, having the dollars to actually go and do your purchase. Uh, I found that quite a simple process. Um, what happens is, though, you know, when you're 18 and you're single and you do your investing and you buy a property, that's all going well, as you start to A, get a little bit older and B, start listening to what other people are telling you uh, and start getting concerned about what if things don't go well, uh, the fear kicks in, the little voice kicks in, the doubt kicks in Um, and I think it's also what I call, and you may have heard the term before, the barbecue talk, Um, you start getting concerned about what if, what if I succeed in this, you know, what happens then and what if my mates don't like it or what if, you know, the family, the extended family don't like it and all that, you know, the, the, the doubt, the fear, doubt and judgment kicks in. Um, and I think that's where it becomes, uh, you've got to be a bit more careful um, and also more careful with the internal dialogue um, as to, why you're creating, what you're creating, why you're creating your property portfolio. Uh, it's all about the reason why, and I am I actually believe that your why will be 80% of your success. And if your why is purely just because of wanting to create money, then I think you're losing something along the way. Um, it, it's a real issue, but if it's, I mean, if I look at my mission, which really is now all about to help others turn their dreams into reality, Um, the why is just ongoing. And when I get a phone call every day from someone that wants some assistance, um, you know, when I get an email from someone that says, hey, can you help here? To me, that's all about what's our mission. Um, However, in those days where you've got to understand that some of these investments were done where we were having 12 and 15 and 16 and 17% interest rates and the the fear comes in, um, it's a very different time. Uh, so I think that there's a point there and I call now to a lot of my clients because I do some coaching with some clients and I call it the growing pains. It's the growing pains of your portfolio. Um so whilst it's quite small and it's it's like a child, whilst the child's small, that's all good. There you know, life's good. Um, there's not a lot happening there and you're going through the your younger years and your formative years and that's all great. However, as you you know hit a different stage of life and you start going through some growing pains, um, it gets quite awkward.
1: There will always be people pushing you down but the most important people to take notice of are the ones pulling you up. Cheryl Ambus had a great influence pushing him to do better for himself.
0: Probably the biggest influence um, or definitely the biggest influence was my dad in particular and certainly both my parents um, and just watching. way dad did things and watching the way um you know probably with much less education much less technical knowledge and skill um but watching the portfolio of properties that uh, mum and dad built during those times um that was just a huge influence on me um business journey um, and as well as me personally it was um, you know it's to, to be able to see that and to be able to see the uh, the values that, that they hold because you hear a lot of people talk about the property industry
1: Best advice comes from both people and experience.
0: I, I think some of the things that um, that that have stuck with me is you know to to keep it simple, um, you know start small, you know without trying to you know change the world and recreate you know the wheel, you know with your first transactions. Just get the learnings. Um, the learnings is really important so it's uh, I've seen people that you know come into their first property deal and you know may have a home or it may even be before they've bought their own home and they're looking to do their first property purchase and you know they're looking for that first purchase to be their retirement fund Um, just start small Um, you know Treat it. treat your investing journey like you do your business journey so for me, I started as an apprentice, and I ran a four-year apprenticeship. Then, when I get into the property industry, I see that as another apprenticeship. You've got to learn by that. Um, you've got to learn from that. So it's it's yeah, it's invaluable to be able to do that. And um, I suppose what I shared earlier about, you know, a lot of people believe that you know their journey is all because of them. Um, And as I said earlier, I think it's really all about your team and all about the mentors and all about the people around you. Um, Have a look at the people that you're surrounding yourself with. Make sure your goals are what you want them to be. Um, You know, if someone said to me, what would I do differently? Uh, It's probably going to be, you know, start earlier and set bigger goals. Um, (laughs) You know, but uh, other than that, there's probably not a lot of change.
1: Cheryl Ambas has a very unique and interesting way of doing things. His company approached deals as a way to meet owners' needs as well as their own.
0: Yeah, so there's probably the, the the two main strategies we would run and have run is our is our joint ventures and our property options, and we run them hand in hand. Um, so the example I used in the previous podcast was, you know, where we turned up to an open home and um, the lady turned up. Well, the owner turned up just as I was leaving and we had a chat about what her needs were. So what we did there, we actually took out uh, an option to purchase the property um, and we took out a 12-month option. We paid her a fee um, to secure the property or to take that property off the market for 12 months and she retained that fee even if we didn't proceed uh, with our purchase. What that option does is give us the time Uh, to one, do our due diligence, but two, because we had 12 months on this particular one, it actually gave us the time to actually do our DAs and get our approvals for which in that case was going to be two new dwellings. So by the time we got to the end of the 12 months, we'd had our approvals in place, which meant that we could get our property valued based on building two new dwellings. So it was now a property that had approval for two new dwellings as to a property with just one house on it. So we actually got an increased valuation before we even purchased the property. So from our point of view, it de risks the transaction. It makes it means that we're able to pay uh, the owner in a lot of cases a little bit more because we're not having to pay holding costs for the twelve months. If you imagine paying, you know, I know rates are a bit lower right now, but in a lot of cases you're paying 6 and 8 and 10% holding cost, um, and years ago a lot more, as opposed to just paying the owner. We could pay the owner an extra 3 or 4% on their asking price. However, we haven't had to outlay that money until we've got our DA approvals. Um, That makes a huge difference.
1: How would an owner, say for example, she put it on a market to wanting to sell but then have to wait 12 months before she could move, why would she actually agree to do a deal like this?
0: Yeah. So um, with her, what we did was we actually agreed that in the end when it came time to actually uh, – the right term is to exercise our option and purchase her property, what we agreed with her was that we actually – rather than purchasing the property and building the two homes, we were actually just going to build the two homes on the land and she keep one and we keep one. Now, to give you some numbers on this so that the listeners can understand it, her home was actually on the market. This is in St Ives in Sydney. Her home was on the market for $895,000. We offered to pay her $900,000 and we wanted a 12 month option. And we paid her a 2% option fee. So on $900,000, 2% is $18,000. So we, so we paid her $18,000 and we've got this property off the market for 12 months and we can buy it for 900,000 at the end of it. By the end of the 12 months, we got a valuation on the property and it came in at million and fifty. So our bank, if we wanted to buy, would have lent us the money based on a million and fifty purchase price or million and fifty value. But what we did was we went back to her and said, now we can buy this now and we'll build the two homes and make a profit and everyone's happy. Or if you like, we'll build the two homes, you keep one and we'll keep one. And she went that path. Now she may not have and we were happy to buy it. But she did go down that path where we then turned that option into a joint venture. We built the two homes. Those two homes on completion were worth, one One was worth a little bit more than the other. So one was 1.15 and the other was 1.18. So she actually kept, she stayed in the one worth 1.15. So she went from a property that she was selling for 895000 Two years later, because let's say it took us about a year to build it. So two years later she's in a brand new home in the same location worth one point one five million dollars. That's cost her nothing to build, and we sold the other property for one point one eight million dollars. Now the two properties from our point of view were about I think it was about an eight fifty or nine hundred thousand dollar investment into that deal. So we've invested nine hundred and we came out with 1.18. So we make $280,000 in profit. She's moved into a brand new home worth $250,000 more than what she was in two years ago and it's in the same location.
1: And it's her own land as well so she didn't even really have to even change addresses.
0: She didn't do anything. She, she, kept, she kept the same address. One thing she did need to do was move out whilst we were doing the build. In her case, she actually moved in with her daughter. Um, so she was happy um, and that's a typical example of how we go from an option to a joint venture. Now, we've done some where at the end of our option period, we just exercise the option and buy them and do the building ourselves. We've done others where we've actually gone straight into a joint venture and never done an option. We've just gone straight in and explained the joint venture to the owners and gone straight in and done uh, a joint venture with them with the intention that they were going to stay there.
1: So, what exactly does the owner get out of this kind of deal? Why would they undertake this process rather than just selling the house?
0: For instance, had one in St Ives where also not far from that that same one where um, we were looking to build, we actually had a property, took an option out. It was actually a bigger property, $2 million purchase price, it was a $20,000 option fee um, and what we did was we got an approval to build five dwellings on that property and the owner just wanted to sell. When we went in to look at this property the first time, the owner was getting offers between 1.8 and 1.9 mil. However, there were people that were just coming in to buy the property and buy it outright. And I actually had a meeting direct with the owner. The agents in the area got to know us quite well, and so. The agent was very happy for me to go in and sit down and with the agent and the owner and have a meeting. And the owner kept saying to me that he really wanted two million dollars and he really wanted two million dollars and he repeated that several times. And the, the thing was, you have to listen to what people are saying. I think a lot of people forget that you know we're all born with two ears and one mouth, so you should be listening twice as much as you speak. And Yeah, and a lot of people just want to keep talking, but if you listen, and this guy kept saying that he wanted two million dollars. So in the end, I said I'd come back to him with an offer, and it was all about building this offer so that I could get him two million dollars. And we got almost two years under option on this property. We were paying him two million dollars. In fact, we got 21 months in the end under option for two million dollars. We were paying him $2 million, We gave a $20,000 option fee. However, the reason why was during that same conversation when he was saying he wanted $2 million. This was in March of this particular year when I was meeting with him. And he, he told me that his daughter was in year 11, So I knew that he would want to keep some stability for his daughter until she finished her HSC a year and a half later. So I suggested to him that we would let him stay in the home for a year and a half, not disturb his daughter. At the end of that time, he gets his $2 million, and that gives us the time to get all our approvals in place. And he was wrapped because (laughs) because it meant that it gave him certainty that he was going to get his $2 million at the end. It meant that he could go looking for a property. And in fact, when he was buying a property, he went and bought acreage. When he was buying a property, he actually asked me to go and have a look at the property for him and give him my thoughts, which I did. And I was very happy to do it. And we just did it. we built a relationship. And all this is about relationships. I mean, you've heard me talk about my team. You've heard me talk about mentors. And now we talk about doing these joint ventures. And I talk to you about speaking to the owners, directly working out what the owner wants, seeing if we can't always deliver. Sometimes if people have an unrealistic expectation and we can't deliver, we've got to walk away. But all this is about relationships. And with that $20,000 option fee that I paid him, I actually paid that in installments. And I think it was $5,000 every three months or something that I was giving him for the first 12 months to give him his $20,000. And what it meant was every three months, I'd go around and I'd knock on the door and I'd have a cheque for $5,000 for him. And so by the time the three months rolled around and I'd knock on the door, he was very excited because Harry was turning up with $5,000. So he got comfortable with the fact that I was just turning up and I was giving him my money as I told him I would and they'd they'd have the kettle on and we'd sit down and we'd have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and a bit of afternoon tea together but we built a relationship so that he trusted what we were doing. It's just all relationships, this whole industry is relationships. And if you can build that, I now get some of these people that we've done joint ventures with, I now get phone calls from their friends and their family and their relatives and all that, their neighbours saying, oh, look, you worked with my neighbour or you worked with my friend who referred by this person. Uh, we'd be interested in doing something similar. <laughs>
1: If you thought that was amazing, wait until you hear the outcome. Cheryl Ambus made a tidy profit on the deal without having to build anything.
0: We actually settled it at the $2 million uh, and we were going to build the five dwellings uh, but last minute we got an offer from someone else that actually bought it or we about to settle it for $2 million. We actually never ended up settling, we were very close to, we told them we would but last minute we got an offer from someone that came in with the DA approval that we had for the five dwellings. And they bought our option and they bought, they paid us or they paid for the whole property 2.425. And what that meant was the owner got his 2 million and we got the 425,000.
1: With a very small outlay of around $20,000 plus your time involved in doing the DA. That is an amazing success story.
0: (laughs) They're good fun. I like those.
1: There are a few aspects needed to implement a strategy like this yourself. Jay Lambis shares the secret behind the strategy.
0: I mean, we now run a business where we do our own DAs, so that's quite a simple process for us. However, initially, we were just outsourcing all that. We were just going to town planners and going to our architects and working out how to do it. Um, So it was, you know, certainly a lot of it can be outsourced. And when I started doing it, I mean, I was doing some of this, you know, whilst I was still running my previous business. So again, because I'm suggesting that people start slowly and start small, um, I got an email from one of my clients yesterday who I actually have done a little bit of mentoring with him and he's now sent me an email yesterday and he said, I've got someone that's ready to do a joint venture with me. Can you just assist me with getting initial documentation in place? So doing the joint venture documentation and heads of agreement and things like that. Um, So he's... He's off doing his own thing. Uh, in fact, he's an architect, so he'll design the dwellings. However, he knows when to ask for assistance. So if you've got a skill in, say, doing the designs, just get assistance in putting the agreements in place. Or if, if you if you understand legals and you know how to do the agreements, however, you just need some skill in design, then just outsource that piece. Uh, stick to what you're good at. Stick to what you enjoy doing and just outsource the others. It's a bit like um, you know some people with investment properties like to manage it themselves, other people get a property manager. So it's the same thing. Just stick to the bits you enjoy doing. Uh, that's really important. it's It's for me, for instance, in our business, I, I don't do the accounts. It's not what I enjoy doing. Uh, and that's not to say that someone doesn't. the person that does our accounts enjoys doing accounts. And I'm really grateful that I have people that enjoy doing accounts. Um, I enjoy being out there, getting out there talking to people, finding out what people's needs are and seeing if we can meet them. Um, you know and a lot of time, you know people say, "Oh, you create these transactions." I don't actually believe I create them. I believe I'm just putting myself in a position where I'm attracting them. so you've got to get and to do that. You've got to get clear about your goals, you've got to get clear about what you're looking for, and you've got to take the action. Now, initially for us, as I mentioned, we were out there looking at open homes, talking to agents on a regular basis. We actually did, um, because we did a lot of these joint ventures in Karengai Council, so through Taramara, Wurrunga, St Ives, through that area, we actually did um, in the local paper, which is the North Shore Times, which is a... The most widely read paper in this area. Um, We did 10,000 leaflets and we actually just put them in every newspaper that went out. Um, And we got the North Shore Times as an insert with one of our brochures. And yeah, we outlaid a little bit of money. However, those brochures, we were getting calls off them for the next six months. Um, People kept those brochures and and we just, just called us. So it's about taking the action. We we did some brochures and just went around and looked for the blocks that we thought were suitable and did letterbox drops. Um, again, people just pinned the, our brochure up on their fridge and just kept calling us. Um, now, you may not want to walk the streets and do the brochures, so just get someone to deliver them for you. Um, it depends what works for you and depends how serious you are about it. Some people don't want to do that. Some people are happy just to buy... A couple of investment properties and have them grow for them. But as I mentioned at the start, I wanted to manufacture some equity and I wanted to uh, accelerate the portfolio uh, a lot quicker. The commercial sites that we're involved in, um, they've, you know, they've got the potential of far out. This residential stuff is. I really enjoy it because it helps me help others but the commercial things I mean I'm negotiating on some sales at the moment and I negotiated one where I increased the price of the sale price of one of them by a million dollars whilst I was driving home um, just just in a negotiation in the car on the way home.
1: We touched a little bit that you're, you've switched your portfolio from residential mostly to commercial transactions. Can we talk a little bit more about um, the reasons why and also how you've done that as well?
0: Sure. Uh, if I give you an example of and I'll use the one where our office is and where I'm sitting at the moment. Um, and it's, um, we initially, when we started our business, we wanted to um, find somewhere where we could run the business from. However, we said, if we're going to do that, let's have that be something that we can add some value to. And we went out and I was actually just driving, driving down the highway in Karamara and saw a for sale sign, Um and it was on a property where I happened to know the owner, and it, the reason why I knew him, it was because a few years earlier, I had done electrical work for him on a shop that he owned that used to be, it used to be a takeaway. Um, so I literally went and knocked on his door, and his name was Bill, and I said, Hey, Bill, how are you going? We had a bit of a discussion, and I said, Look, I see you're selling your property. And he said, Yes, I am. And I said, look, I'm looking to buy a property in the area. So we had a discussion and probably took us a week or 10 days and a bit of toing and froing, and we came to an agreement on buying his property. Now, we then arranged to get access during settlement. We had a three-month settlement. We agreed on price. We had a three-month settlement and during that three months, we went in and refurbished the property. He was actually running a business downstairs and living in a unit in an apartment above the business. We've closed, we got rid of the stairs, closed the flooring, renovated the two, top and bottom. We run our office from upstairs and we've had a tenant downstairs since the very first day in 2005 when we bought the property. It's the same tenant that's been there. And the difference is that's been great from a cash flow point of view. And we've actually since gone on to buy um, properties both sides of us as well, and we've amalgamated this site now to become its own development site. However, the difference is what we bought was a shop with an office above, but the intention was that we knew we could work with council on getting a rezoning done. And in the time that we've owned this, it's gone from being a shop, top, what's known as shop top housing to being a commercial zoning with a six-storey height limit. So this property has gone from, and if I'm just talking of stick to the one property, has gone from having a value of a purchase price of $820,000 to today looking at being sold for somewhere in the vicinity of $4 million, and it's probably more than that. Um, And really, we've run our business from it for the last 10 or 12 years. We did a renovation in 2005. Um, but where the value added has come in is because of the rezoning that we've worked with council to get on the six stories. And then we amalgamated it with next door. And now I'm selling it to someone that wants to actually develop it and do the six stories. Um, and that, to me, is really minimizing my risk from. Just having one tenant down there that's basically paid the mortgage since 2005. Um, However, when we sell it, we end up with a 400%.
1: That's a huge, huge upside, especially. So it sounds like going from, say, residential or mixed residential or mixed commercial, I should say, to a full commercial has a huge upside then when you're working on these kind of projects. Is that what what would be the ultimate goal most of the time to actually take these these kind of properties and and turn them into?
0: I suppose simplistically the, the biggest upside comes in increasing your density. And to keep to keep it simple so people can understand it, it's just increasing the density. So if you go from residential on something which is a single residential to being able to do a subdivision, you're increasing the density. In this instance we've gone from something that was zoned two stories to something that is now zoned for six stories. And it's also gone from a floor space ratio of one to one, which means if you've got a block of land which is a thousand square metres in size, you can build a thousand square metres of building. We've rezoned this from one to one to two to one, which means we've got a thousand square metres of land, we can build two thousand square metres of building. So, and obviously that's over multi stories, not on the ground. So the increased density is where you make your, your manufactured equity, it's always about the increased density. So whether that is floor space ratios, extra storeys or subdivisions, it's always the same outcome, it's increased density With generally increased density is increased equity.
1: Personal habits are essential when it comes to self-care and keeping a clear headspace. space. Lambus has unlocked the perfect pattern for him. That gives him extra time and clarity during the day.
0: Time, I mentioned earlier about blocking, uh, in the previous podcast, blocking time out for myself and some quiet time. Uh, And my business partner often talks about uh, the times where the success is created the most is actually when I go on holidays. Uh, Because what happens is you get that time, you come back with a clear head, you come back with you know, an open mind, and you're able to think a bit clearer. And the way I do that day-to-day is every morning, 365 days of the year, my alarm clock goes off at 4.50 a.m. And that time, I'm normally out of bed then and out the door by about 10 past 5, quarter past 5. And between 5.15 and 6.15, I have one hour, and I'll go for a walk. And I'll be listening, and it could be listening to my podcasts, it could be listening to uh, a motivational speaker, it, but it's my time. It's whatever I choose to do during that one hour, and and my walk. So my morning walk, my morning exercise, start the day with my exercise, start the day with some quiet time, um, and also with some form of motivational, and it could be a, something of interest or, or, or of motivation to me, but that one habit if and, and you know people talk about how to get so much done and if you add one hour a day to your day and you it's giving you 365 hours a week that is uh, 365 hours a year sorry that the extra that's actually 940 hour weeks extra that you get over a one-year period which is equivalent to two extra months that you do that you get so that one hour, that one hour of quiet time to me uh, and for me has made a huge difference and I, I, I uh, on the odd occasion if I miss it, um, yeah, my wife knows by the afternoon she says, you better go for your walk, you're getting grumpy.
1: In his free time, he loves listening to motivational speakers and shares some of his favorites.
0: Look, I, I, I mean, uh, uh, a lot of the, the motivational speakers, um, you know, that, Here out there, certainly guys like Bob Proctor. uh, I like from a motivational point of view. Brian Tracy's great business-wise. You know, most of your listeners, I imagine, would have heard and listened to some of the Tony Robbins stuff. Um, You know, they're just they're just classics. I think they they are timeless messages um, that have got so much to teach us. And the more you listen to them. Um, if you want to, if people want to drill down a little bit deeper into their own personal habits, um, you know guys like Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra, um, really, really good from a personal point of view.
1: You to Harry Charles Lumbus, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. Also before you go, head over to our website at propertyinvestory.com to get the show notes for a secret segment about getting through those growing pains of starting out in property. If you love the show, perhaps you're now ready to invest your money in a low-risk, high-return deal. If you are, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a lender. There are amazing opportunities in the property market right now and I'm looking for lenders who want to invest their money for as short as 6 months. What are you waiting for? Don't let your money just sit in the bank. To register your interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040.